Uh, so just before we begin, I should just say that um, spoiler warning for all the films we're about to say. So we'll we'll say the film before before we start talking about it. But we are going to be talking about plot spoilers all the way through. So if you haven't seen the film, um, probably go watch it before you finish the rest of the podcast. Or skip. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Real Film Podcast. My name's Phil. And I'm Corey. <laughs> uh, and today we're going to be talking about um, our 20 best films from the decade of the 2010s. So two th- this is films from 2010 to 2019, because 2020 isn't in the decade, as someone once tried to tell me. Um, so this is just a list of what we think is the best from those 10 years. Um there will definitely be films omitted from that, but we're going to be taking this, uh, splitting this up into multiple podcasts and we'll dedicate a whole one to the honourable mentions because uh, it's been a really good decade. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yeah, I would. It's, uh, I mean, maybe that's just because it's when we started getting into film, but I would say it's one of the strongest ones that I've watched a lot of films from, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but- I th- it's it's the one where we've watched the most cinema for sure so that definitely helps um so we're going to kick it off with a film from 2010 uh which is black swan which is um arguably darren aronofsky's best film um i think we've had this conversation before that i don't know if there's another film that you could immediately jump to and say yes that's his best one there's other films i really like but i think black swan you know stands head and shoulders above most of his films definitely i I don't think there's really any argument about it i mean i know that <clears throat> i mean i know that uh obviously requiem for a dream is a lot of people love it mm. and uh but the ones that jump out to me are always black swan and the wrestler yeah the um, wrestler was mine yeah yeah but uh black swan is uh, it's fantastic and i i mean i rewatched it like two days ago um, and I was a bit cautious when we initially put it on the list because I hadn't seen it in a while. I just remember loving it, but rewatching it is so good. It's it so good. And I think it's not just a career high for Aronofsky. I think it's a really good career high for Natalie Portman as well. Like, yeah, I th- I think we, I think we both are in the same uh, agreement that she's a really great actress, but she hasn't had that many chances to be like that that really great next level you know do, do you know what i mean like the not, she hasn't had many chances to bring that incredible performance out which i think aronofsky brings out this astounding performance from her especially that last of half an hour or so is so wildly intense and so um engaging and it, i just don't think it would work if you didn't have someone um with such a strong performance in it i think it would i think it would fall flat if she wasn't um at the same sort of level as the filmmaking around her you know yeah definitely i think uh especially when like when we're building the character and she's just this like princess who's basically on the verge of tears every time there's any kind of conflict and she's very i guess the pink because there's just so much pink involved uh yeah. But it, I mean, it's perfect. And she is perfect in it, and especially that last Absolutely. half an hour when she starts to turn into the black swan. It's just yeah. phenomenal. 
Yeah, and like and like on rewatching as well, I felt like um, you appreciate Mila Kunis's character a lot more as well. Like she she's another person who I don't think has had quite as much chance to show her ability, but she's such a like liking and charismatic um, just person in general that I think going across from Portman sort of slowly descending into insanity is um, um, is like a really just I think she's the perfect um, juxtaposition to Portman. Yeah, I think she's like, uh, I guess she's almost like the movie star, you know, she's just the very likable movie star. And Mm. you're right, she's never really had that opportunity to kind of prove herself. But uh, because I remember when I first watched it, I never really took that much notice of Mila Kunis's performance because Natalie Portman is so powerful in it. Um, But I think on rewatch, I think definitely, yeah, she's, I mean, she wasn't nominated for an Oscar but uh, I would say she probably could have been definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I th- I think as well. Yeah. Um. So why did you? Because uh, I know this was like one of your three, like this was your choice, and obviously I'm fully with it. But like, why did you pick this over like other films to be on the list? I think it's um, like with many films on this the, this list that I chose. There's a certain level of originality to it, so when you think a film about ballet, this is not what you imagine at all. I no, think that's very this, true. The, it's not, I think that's probably the wrong way of saying it as well, because it's not a film about ballet. It's a film about yeah. identity and obsession, like complete just devotion and obsession to perfection. Um, and I think, um, I think it just, it just jumps out as me. I think people forget it a little bit because it's not, um, a Paul Thomas Anderson film or anything like that, or, or the other films we'll get to on the list. It's not one that I mean, but like, I think I think that's because it's been a while now. This is obviously the the earliest film on the list by quite some way. It's uh, ten years old now, or probably nearly eleven. That's actually. mental. Yeah, and I do think that's crazy, and I just think that um, it goes it falls by the wayside. And I think it is completely original. I think it's stunning the performances. I think it's superbly directed by an excellent director, uh, like a modern director. Um, I think something as well is it, it, it's probably some of Aron, Aronofsky's best uh, like shot sequences as well, especially with like all the stuff with the mirrors in the um, in the practice hall. I think it's I just think it's a really really great um, uh, and people don't jump to it enough. I think so. Yeah, I think with the you know how he shoots it as well, he's, he puts so much energy into the camera work during the ballet scenes that it's absolutely. It's not really about like the delicacy of doing ballet. It's about the intensity of that search for perfection, and I mm. think that's what makes it different. And yeah, I, I mean, there's so many scenes, isn't it, as well, that are kind of horrific to watch as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm just going to use the uh, point of originality to segue into the next film, actually, which is The Place Beyond the Pines, um, which is the Derek Kieran France film. And I'm a huge fan of Derek Kieran France's film. Um, we could have very easily put. Um, Blue Valentine in this Um, but I think there's something about Place Beyond the Pines that is just again it just it's the originality of the narrative Um, so the way that it kind of just segments into like three distinct sort of almost generational um, segments of the film and just I just think it's so uniquely written and so brilliantly written Um, it's completely heartbreaking as well you're not gonna you wouldn't expect to see what actually happened, you know, with um, Ryan Gosling. I mean, talk about Ryan Gosling, what a decade Gosling's had, you know. The fact that the guy hasn't won 
or barely even been nominated for an Oscar in this decade is shocking because the films he's come out with in these in this ten years is just outstanding. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's had a very good choice of films in this decade. Definitely, he has, he has, which is pretty shocking considering the films he had. Not not that he was choosing awful films before it, but you know he didn't exactly have um, the most stellar career up until. I don't know if I don't know when the turning point would have been. It probably would have been um, Blue Valentine. What was that? Two thousand and nine. Uh, 2010 2010 yeah um i think up until that point he he'd had an okay career but yeah this is this is, this is a excellent turn from him too it's oh, i i love how Kim france shoots his films as well he shoots on 35 mil and you can just tell it just has this gorgeous sort of almost nostalgic look to it it's so cinematic and so beautiful um i mean even from the opening shot the opening shot is that um you, you get really close up on the on the cage of the motorbikes going round that big sort of ball and it yeah. just takes a really really long track out and i just think it sets the tone for the film and um yeah i absolutely love it yeah i remember i think maybe i was 15 when i first watched it this is sort of when i started watching movies because before i just i hadn't watched any good movies other than lord of the rings um <laughs> And I think I just remember watching it and thinking, I, I didn't realize you could do that, like narratively, <laughs> like structurally. Yeah. I didn't realize that was allowed, basically. <laughs> and uh, it's really effective. It's um, it's gorgeously shot as well. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I mean, Gosling, I, I've heard, but he's got his, I know he's got his critics. A few people I've spoke to don't particularly like Ryan Gosling. I don't really understand why. Those it's, people are wrong. <laughs> yeah, those <laughs> people are wrong. <laughs> But yeah, uh, definitely. I, I mean, maybe I haven't. Um, I think if you, you know, if we were like we were talking about Blue Valentine, I think a Place Beyond the Pines is probably better for me. But again, they're, they're two very, very good films from a very good director. They're very different as well. They're they're they're, they're going for different things, aren't they? They're, they're challenging different themes. Um, Blue Valentine isn't because it's the, it's the interesting thing about Place, the, Place Me on the Pines it's almost an epic of sorts do you know what I mean yeah. by that like because it, it it does span a very long period of time and it moves from Gosling to uh, Bradley Cooper who you've never if you've never watched this film you've never seen Bradley Cooper like this before he's absolutely superb on to, um, and then like moving from Bradley Cooper onto his son um, I just think is a it's a stroke of genius uh, narratively yeah and I think everyone's brilliant in it yeah, speaking of good performances, <laughs> the next one, it's a nice segue, uh, is Blue is the Warmest Colour, <clears throat> French movie from 2013. Uh, I'm going to say the director's name and I'm going to get it wrong and I apologise right now. It's uh, <laughs> Abdelatif Keshish, I believe, uh, and I'm very sorry if I've mispronounced that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, 2013 romance uh, about a girl called Adele who essentially is discovering her sexuality and it's a coming of age tale is what it is um and it won the palm door um i love it i remember watching it for the first time it's gorgeous and it's all about the two performances though like it has to be like yeah. the two of the best performances i think i've ever seen i would say adele more adele uh, exotropolis she's definitely you know driving this film it's like those little little uh, soft scenes um you know she's she's just perfect she's uh 
She's very shy. She's very emotional, and she just nails it every time. Absolutely. Um, but obviously, you know, we've rewatched this recently, um, and I think the emotional scenes still hold that impact. Really, absolutely. I, I had more. I had more resonance with the the small scenes as well, like like the like the scenes that don't really affect the narrative all that much, like the two dinners that they have once they're together and they have dinners with the parents, they affected me a lot more than um, on my first watch. And I think it's just because it, it, it there's such um, minor moments, you know, they're just bringing... So, so, um, so like, when you go to uh, the dinner with Emma, um, her parents already know about her sexuality. So, like, they're asking questions um, about Adele and, you know, they, you have this really easy-flowing discussion and they don't approve of some of Emma's life choices, but they aren't prying too much. And then you go to the other side and um, Adele's parents don't know about her sexuality, so they just think she's um, uh, tutoring uh, Adele in philosophy uh, and they're asking about a boyfriend, is he potentially a husband and all this sort of stuff. And it's just little moments like that that tell you a lot not just about the parents, but about the characters as well and how much they're willing to reveal at this point in their life. Um, something just to um, piggyback off a point you said earlier about it being a coming of age as well. I actually, I totally agree. It is a coming coming of age drama, but because of the length of time that it spans, it becomes so much more than that as well. Because it goes into, into the sort of the young, or not the young, but like the early adult life of the pair as well. Do you know what I mean? It spends quite a lot of time with Adele, as she has become a teacher, she's not just a teaching assistant anymore. Well, she, she's in high school when it starts, and by the end of it, she's a fully-fledged teacher who served many years at a school. So I think it's a coming-of-age drama that becomes like almost like um, like a life film. Do you know what I mean? It almost yeah. spans like the same length of uh, that a biopic would, that you, you follow them with such a long amount of time. I think it does that so um, like delicately as well. Like the amount of time it spans doesn't feel like you're taking huge jumps. And it's really interesting as well because it was only filmed over about six months. But when you compare the Adele from the start to Adele to the end, she might not look that different in her face, but it, it the way she pre- presents herself, herself and the way she, they, you know, they make, they dress her up and everything. It's more than enough to make her look aged enough because when you meet um, Emma for the first time, she's already pretty mature. So, but you see her go from this young adult mature to being a much more sort of like into this sort of um, level of artist that is like uh, quite an adult artist. Um, and I just think it's so fascinating how it, it takes what could be just a coming of age film and t- turns it into so much more. Yeah, I agree. Um, when I first watched it, I always thought it was kind of split up into three. Um, maybe that's because it's three hours, I don't know. But I always yeah. saw sort of three distinct parts to it. Um, but I guess you're right. It's, it is. It spans so much time. And it's done with so much subtlety that it's not really about you know three or two particular uh, pieces of time. And like you said, physically, you know, Adele has changed the way she's dressed, but she's also una- she's not afraid to put herself out there at this age yeah, either. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, she's such a quiet person, nervous because of all these um, you know uh, attractions she's getting. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, and she's very shy around new people. But mm. with Emma, it's Emma kind of brings out the sort of adult in her a little bit by the end. Mm. And, uh, you know, having to find maturity in 
you know, losing something you love and a in a mistake you've made, basically. Mm. Um, but obviously, it's a movie that is kind of surrounded by controversy a little bit. I was about to say this, yeah. Um, obviously, there's I don't know the full story. Apparently, the director uh, was very sort of forceful because obviously, the, one of the most famous scenes from the movie is like the 10 minute, 15 minute sex scene, I believe. Yeah. Um, and apparently he was very adamant that it had to happen like this and very pushy towards the, the actresses. And also outside of that, you know, every scene was rumored to be shot like hundreds of times in order to like basically torture the actresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason I still put it in is because it's celebrated because of the actresses. Like it's yeah. a fantastic film but people always reward uh, the the actresses. Like even the Palm Door was given like in honor of the actresses. Yeah. So I know, although you know, very problematic the way treated as actresses, how they deal with it and how they project themselves on screen make this movie what it is. I, I think I think the best way to sort of see the movie is to celebrate it as two yes. great performances and that's exactly why i put it in the list yes you know outside of that it's a fantastic narrative but i think because of the problems you have to use it as a celebration of two actresses who are absolutely phenomenal mm. and i'm very sad that uh adele has not been in more movies uh well she, of She's course she has bad. but there will be french there'll be french movies and it means you know less international acclaim yeah because uh, she is absolutely perfect in it Absolutely. I think I, I think I may have fallen in love when I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame. You. And we must. I know you mentioned the sex scene briefly there, but I do say, I did say to you after rewatching it, I do feel like, especially that first one, it is a bit too gratuitous in how much it shows. Um, but I think to me, we could. It's definitely too long. But I feel like you need at least some form of sort of raw um, sexual scene between them because you have the sequence where she has sex with the guy and there's just nothing there. You can like, there's no chemistry. There's no emotion. There's no intensity. I feel like you needed that scene. It does get too gratuitous, but I do think you needed something like that at least. Um, But let's move away from controversialness. Let's move on to uh, 2014's whiplash. So uh, this is not going to be the only film um, from Damien Chazelle on this list. Um, But this is the one that, probably got him the acclaim that he now has yeah up until that point um i'd say 2014 was the best year of the 2010s i mean i think it was overtaken um basically (laughs) two years after but um you know you had movies like whiplash and birdman and you know some other films that will appear on this list um but yeah whiplash was sort of the introduction of a damien chazelle and it's about a, a jazz drummer who gets the opportunity to play in one of the most prestigious bands in uh, the city. Uh, But it turns out that the person running the band is quite intense. And essentially it's about how far you're willing to push yourself to achieve greatness. And um, it's performed phenomenally by J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller. And I think... For me, although the whole film is brilliant, I think the last 30 minutes is probably one of the best scenes in the past like 20 years, 30 years. Mm, yeah, you it's quite interesting actually. Quite interesting that you've got this and Black Swan, which both have sort of similar themes of, you know, trying to reach that absolute perfection, you know, that absolute greatness, and then have this just outstanding 
finishing sequence. I feel like you need that to set set the point home though, because they need to reach that perfection um, for for the film to to work. But I think Whiplash had yeah, as you said, the, the last. 30 20 minutes of whiplash are so good i do think people do forget how good the rest of the film is up to it it's got such a kinetic pace to it like i think it's only about one hour and 40 one hour 46 and it does not let up at all it absolutely flies by you know it's not a very long film but it absolutely flies by it feels like it could be under an hour and a half because it's so kinetic the pacing never lets up it's it's like the music that they're playing you know the, the name whiplash comes from the song that they're trying to that he's trying to play that's got an incredibly difficult drum section um and i think just like the music they're playing there's just this incredible pace throughout that just does not ever let up even in the scenes that are just complete dialogue i think that like there's that scene around the dinner table where he's got the family around and stuff that is so snappy and so yeah it's just uh, kinetics the best way i can describe it yeah, I think, I think especially in the sort of conversations, he manages to find this like intense way of writing and delivering dialogue as well as well. And obviously, the music scenes are pretty intense. Uh, mm. But yeah, like you say, the the conversations as well. He's got such a great pace to the movie. Um, it never, never sort of slows down really. And yeah, I've, I've got to say though, I still think. Although the whole movie is brilliant, it it feels like the last scene is just waves ahead of all of it, Absolutely. in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is it is it's not like Black Swan where Black Swan's really great and then has just a, like a, a better ending. It is like a really great film with a clear clearly better last act. Um, yeah. and it's so bizarre how tense it is that he's just playing music. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. all it is is just playing music, but it's so tense. Um, I think it's down to uh, J.K. Simmons as well in that scene, yeah. particularly. Uh, you know, this um, he obviously thinks that he's kind of uh, embarrassed this uh, Miles Teller yeah. by basically sending him on stage with basically no understanding of what's happening. And then Miles Teller turns it around and J.K. Simmons, instead of getting angry, you know, it's that intensity and that realisation of, oh my God, he's actually nailing it. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it it doesn't he doesn't get there instantly, does it? It takes him a couple of minutes to realize because yeah. he walks over. And he's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And all that. They have that couple of minutes of J.K. Simmons being like, "What do I actually do here? How do I make it look like I'm not going to embarrass myself?" And then when he finally realizes what Miles Teller is actually doing and how he's going to get there, he helps him there as well. Do yeah, I mean, there's because there's that bit where he's sort of like telling him he's like he starts like orchestrating him again. He's like sort of bring it up, bring it up, bring it up, and then bring the band in. It's yeah, it's yeah. I guess give me goosebumps thinking about it. It's so good. Yeah, well, I mean, the next one slightly less intense, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, Grand Budapest Hotel from the same year, um, twenty fourteen, directed by the one and only Wes Anderson, um, and to me. You know, I said this in the article, actually, uh, was that Wes Anderson, you have to give him so much credit for consistency over the years. And it speaks like so much to the quality of uh, the film as well to say that this is his best film. Yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty high praise to say this is this is probably Wes Anderson's best because he's such like a um, distinct auteur as well. Like his films have you no one makes films like Wes Anderson um but I think one of the reasons why uh it is 
his best film is because it's so and it's on and one of the reasons why it's on this list is because he's reaching much higher than any other film he's done like he's he's got so many more moving pieces he's got so many more characters they span um a much larger distance geographically as well which i think is always a difficult um thing for directors to do you know you have to balance all these different characters in all these different places but you've also got to make this cohesive narrative out of it there's almost there's a bit in the middle where um gustav goes to prison and then for a little bit it almost becomes like a road movie do you know what I mean? For like a little bit, where he's like yeah, jumping yeah. from point to point to point to point. And to be able to just put a small road section movie almost in the middle of a film like this, which has such a clear, you know, distinct vision to it anyway, um, I think was pretty brave. But um, I mean, just like talking about, you know, having this amount of characters, he's got an incredible cast in this as well. Basically, anyone that's worked with Wes Anderson before is in this film. And then he adds a whole bunch of new people in it. I mean, this is quite an early performance. I say early performance, early uh, breakout performance for Saoirse Ronan as well. She's absolutely brilliant in this, you know, even though she doesn't have that much time. It. You know, it balances Wes Anderson's amazing use of uh, stop motion and slapstick and everything like that to just make like, I don't know, it's just, I, I this is up until, you know, whatever else he does. For now, this is his magnum opus. You know, this is, this is, I totally agree, it's his best film. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we talk a lot about his style as well. I mean, I think as like, no, there's not many directors that could pull off a movie that's about a writer telling the story of how, two people in a hotel are telling another story. <laughs> yeah, like, that's such a Wes Anderson thing to do. Yeah, as well, yeah. but it works completely. It's that kind of charm of the movie. And I think, um, you know, at the time, obviously everyone was praising Ralph Fiennes, but I think people have started to forget just how good he is in that movie. Yeah. Um, he's just, he's so funny. And I think that's down to Wes Anderson's writing as well. He doesn't just tell a visual story with the beautiful colour palette. He can tell a story that is so funny. Like, I, it's been a long time. I think at the time it had been a long time since I'd like laughed out loud at a movie. <laughs> and, it's so uh, funny as well. That bit where he's in the prison and uh, Zero comes to see him, and he's talking about <laughs> he's talking about that uh, other prisoner trying to uh, jump him or something <laughs> like that. And then, like the very posh and elegant uh, Mr. Gustav refers to him as like a candy ass, and he says he like, beats his ass. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my favourite bits actually comes after that and it's such a minor moment as well. I have such an affinity in this film for picking out, or any of his films really, just picking out the really funny little moments. It's the bit when he comes out of, I think it's the sewer when he's broken out of prison and he comes out and Zero's just like, you're looking like like Mr. Gustav has just sat there with his arms over the top of the sewer. Gustav's just looking at him. He's like, well, help me out. And he gets him out and he's just like, you smell atrocious. And he like, has to spray himself with perfume and stuff like that. That just, <laughs> yeah. It's so yeah. funny. It's so the other funny. bit that, I remember the other bit that really got me was, you know, <laughs> you know, when he's just stood in the hotel lobby with all the policemen mm. and he's just, he's like, oh, uh, I can't remember the, uh, Tilda Swinton's character's name. And obviously, oh, uh, she dies. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> Uh, and he's just he's sitting there and he's like and you think I did it and he just pauses and then he just sprints <laughs> he just sprints backwards up the stairs so funny uh, so it's just funny. it's so it's so good at uh, that sort of comedic time in Ralph Fiennes so I didn't really expect that from him he's, it's very funny absolutely yeah. moving from one comedy to another we're going on to spotlight now <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, one of the best comedies of God 
No, but in all seriousness. Not uh, a comedy. <laughs> no, it's definitely not a comedy. Um, yeah, directed by Tom McCarthy, who uh, mostly known as an actor, um, but yeah, it tells the true story of uh, the spotlight team for the Boston Globe uh, uncovering the sort of conspiracy behind um, the paedophiles in the Catholic Church and how the Catholic Church has gone out of their way to cover it up. And this is a movie that I love because it's it, it was re- reminiscent of uh, All the President's Men, you know, yeah. that idea that the story is so strong itself and the way that it shoots its sort of like journalism is so real, so raw, that as we find out as much as the journalists do, it's just, it goes from like devastating to shocking, back to devastating, it's... It, the writing is absolutely superb, and it's again one of the, some of the best performances you'll see as well. I think one of my favorite aspects of it is that it doesn't even take like a moral high ground in the story. Like it doesn't even try to paint, you know, the paedophilic um, priests and as evil, terrible men. It's just telling the story, which I think is the best thing it could do because I feel like you don't need to say a paedophile is an evil person. You know, yeah. I think we've all got we've all got a good enough moral compass to say yes, paedophiles are terrible. So you don't need it jammed down your throat that they are. It's just telling you the story, and that happens so much as well. Um, I can't remember who it is, but someone goes and knocks on the door of one of them as well, and she's talking to him about um, uh, about his experience, like why why he he did it, and like how how the church covered it up, and then and then like um, he starts admitting of that he was touched as well and almost uses that as a defense for doing it he's like well i well i you know i was molested as well and then his wife brings him back in and i just think it's moments like that where it's like it's not trying to villainize them because they it, they're already pretty villainous but it's just trying to show almost like the whole humanity in the story not necessarily to sort of um, rid them of any guilt but it's just trying to tell you the story which i think is i think it's the most perfect way you could have done it yeah definitely and on the like the flip side it doesn't make the spotlight team as like these massive heroes mm. you know they're people uh who just like us deserve to know the story and they are the ones that have found out the story um and what i love is that they don't you know see themselves as heroes as people that have uncovered this they they start picking at sort of their own faults, you know, with that whole thing when um, they realise that they got a lot of information like 10 years earlier, mm. that list of names 10 years earlier and they basically didn't do anything, it was brushed under the table. It's that kind of realisation that, you know, it's not a heroic victory, this uh, thing being released in the globe. What it is is a story that should have been known so many years earlier. Yeah, I mean, Spotlight is is obviously an amazing film and it comes from an amazing year too. We said 2014 was really great, but 2015 is amazing. Another amazing film from the year was Mad Max Fury Road. Um, and I mean, I don't think it's controversial to say it's one of the best action films of not just this decade, but the 21st century. Maybe ever, but that's not, that's an argument to get into another time. But um, when, when you try and pin down the story of Mad Max, it's basically two, well, just one really long chase sequence uh they get to a point and then they come back 
And that's basic. I mean, you you could throw in everything else, but if you were to boil it down simplistically, it's drive to point A, turn around and go back to where you originally came from. Um, and if you said that and then said it's probably the best car chase sequence of all time, um, you know, it would be hard to to persuade someone unless they actually see see it because the thing that Mad Max Fury Road does so well is that visually it's absolutely outstanding not just in you know the way it's shot and the colors and everything but it's almost entirely practical car effects so one thing that George the director George Miller does perfectly is he shot it in a massive wide open desert with as many cars as he possibly could blew things up left right and center and then used cgi to create mountains and ravines and stuff like that and create a really interesting background but because you're not focusing on the background you're focusing on the cars you're not picking up that you're you've got tons of cgi on the screen because it's behind you yeah i agree and i think the best thing for me was just how he visually told the story as well through the action mm. uh, it's not just about you know an action part, they slow down slightly, they start talking. That's where the story goes. He is able to tell his the story, a very simple story, mind, but he's still very effective. Uh, he's managed he manages to like tell a story through a car chase, mm. and it's kind of that's kind of why you can make the argument for it being one of the best action movies of all time. And I think a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people, um, you know, brush it off saying, "Well, it's just a car chase." But I mean, how many other movies have you seen? that have the ability to do that. Yeah. None, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's interesting as well, we, we keep saying it's a simple story, but if you were to start delving into it, it does become pretty layered because you've got this quite um, interesting sort of uh, dissection of um, uh, testosterone-driven sort of macho competition to take over the sort of patriarchy. You know, you have a Morton Joe at the top and you've... I know that um max himself isn't trying to take over the reins but you've got this macho uh testosterone stuff all swirling around and then at the center of it what you've got is uh charlie's trying to get these um women i can't remember what, what the terminology that um joe uses for the women but they're essentially just like breeding apparatus for him he's just using them for more babies um and she's just getting these women out and trying to get them away and then you have that really interesting bit when they get to that point where they turn around where they meet these more free women um and they realize it's no better out here than where it actually is back there so they need to make it better you know back at this um sort of complex that joe's got um i just yeah i just think it's if you want to start delving into it there is a lot to analyze but at the same time it's just an immensely fun action film oh yeah i totally agree i mean it's just so uh, i guess full throttle i don't really like using this <laughs> term but full throttle is literally the best way to describe it like it's just yeah. absolutely non-stop and yeah, absolutely. i know that it does take that kind of small break where there's that realization that this place they've they've been you know dreaming of is not what they expect so they need to turn around but it's an important part of the movie and yeah the audacity to have a car with a guitarist <laughs> like with fire coming out at the end it's just so like it should be so corny but it's not it's just, it just perfect doesn't. it just doesn't and i think just just as like a point to put on the end there as well 
um, from an editor's point of view, especially the early sequences, they are so well edited. I mean, the whole film is superbly edited, but there's really early sequences where Max has been captured and he's trying to escape from... Um, what does Joe call his... the, the I was going to call them War Boys, but I think that's what they're called in the game rather than the film. Um, but anyway, his children, I guess. Um, he's trying to escape them, and there's this really, really beautiful technique of um removing frames periodically not not just randomly just removing frames here and there and it just gives this really really tense um sporadic um sort of feel to it as he's running away like this panicked feel to it as he's running away i just think it's so um such an original way to because i think people can sometimes forget um that you can use other elements outside of um just performance and directing you can use cinematography and editing and sound to in the most original ways um you know to to make your film even better you know so we mentioned how good 2015 uh, actually was so we're going to chuck in our first uh, animation here which was inside out which is probably one of pixar's if not pixar's best um you know animated features um and I don't know, Corey, do you want to do you want to talk about why it's so good? No, I know how much you love this film, so. Uh, well, I mean, you say probably Pixar's best. I would say it is. I will. We've had many a conversation about this. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's something that's kind of because I've rewatched it in the past, uh, maybe a couple of months, I think. Um, and I would say the thing that stands out the most for me is that I know that Pixar have always managed to do this sort of, um, you know film for all ages kind of thing and it's worked it's worked for them since the first toy story um but for me this movie is actually far more aimed at kids but they find humor to for the adults and the reason it works so well is because it's teaching kids such an important lesson i mean i think while all of pixar's films thematically are great I think this one's one of the most important, you know, teaching kids to be that it's okay to be sad and that it's it's basically not healthy to sort of jumble and bottle up all this emotion uh, that it's okay to release and let yourself be sad. And I think that's why for me it's the best in my opinion, you know. I'm sure we'll have another discussion about that another day, but <laughs> maybe, but I think one thing that I love about it so much is that Although it's it's done in such a skillful like way, it does feel like like so quite a lot of Pixar has this really really good way of making um like like maturely creating a film that feels like it's a child uh, like child's idea. It's like when you say with Toy Story, the idea of the toys coming to life when they're not about, to me, sounds like something a kid would come up with. And this idea of Inside Out, of having these little people in the head, in your head that are the ones that control your emotions, it, they feel like, um, you know, things that kids would think up, but then they take it in such a mature um, filmmaking way and just make this incredible um you know just incredible piece of cinema out of it and it's funny to say that a film about emotions is emotional um but it definitely is like as you say it, it teaches this incredibly important lesson that happiness isn't the only important emotion you know um and that's something that joy has to learn from this you know that she isn't she isn't be all and end all you have to have everything else in there as well 
Um, and yeah, I just I think it's beautifully animated. It's super original. As we said, there's many films and we're going to say this again and again. It's just incredibly original. Um, and I it's definitely one of the best animations of the decade, if not the best animation of the decade. And I just think it's um, yeah, it's just a fantastic it's short as well. I mean, like animations aren't long, but this clocks in at just over an hour and a half. And the amount of themes and like just the length of the narrative that it manages to cram in in this time is is um, just pretty superb filmmaking. Yeah, I think also like the way they build the world, like inside the brain as well. Yeah. Um, it's just very intriguing. It's almost it does feel quite light, but that's why you know parents can appreciate it. Because that kind of layout, uh, the way they lay out uh, Riley's mind is just uh, with all the things from like preschool and stuff like that, the way Joy mm. interacts with her memories. Um, it's just sort of such a beautifully paced film as well. And like I said, it is my favourite Pixar. Yeah. No, no I, 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 still... I don't think that, like there are a couple of films I think you could throw in for contention, but I don't think anyone would be angry at you for saying this. So I was just going to move on to the next one here because <laughs> we talked about 2014 being a great year, 2015 is a great year. Now probably the one that's going to be in contention here is 2016. We actually have five films from 2016 in this list. And um, should we talk about the first one, which actually won Best Picture? No, not La La Land. It was Moonlight. <laughs> um, and what I think is interesting about Moonlight is that we were talking about um, Place Beyond the Pines earlier and um blue is the warmest color having these sort of distinct uh sort of segmented narratives but moonlight does it in a way that you know like especially when you compare it to blue is the warmest color you know <laughs> what segments are what it, it, it it's quite a hard film to define exactly how to sort of like talk about the narrative because it takes three really really distinct segments of um this guy's life as he's coming to terms with his sexuality um it's quite a lot of i think something that this decade has done excellently is bring lgbt plus um sort of themes and and topics into the mainstream because they've always been there but it's now coming to a point where these are now winning best pictures and winning palm d'or and we'll come to another film later that also won an oscar um but it was it's a groundbreaking film um it's it's i i I sometimes struggle to talk about it because it it almost doesn't feel like a film sometimes because of um the way it sort of presents itself and but it's beautiful it's absolutely beautifully shot it's the colors are just so like these sort of almost neon like colors just absolutely just flood the screen and it's just absolutely stunning and what a performance um from Hersh Ali as well I mean he's only on screen for about 10-15 minutes and he won the um supporting actor Oscar and you know rightfully so because he he almost steals the entire film and he's only in it for a brief section in the middle I would say as well, my it's my favourite part of the movie is just, uh, you know, that kind of, his job is uh, a drug dealer. And uh, I quite like that it's sort of in the, you know, it's a, it is about, uh, later on it is about him, you know, finding, discovering his sexuality. But early on it's about a kid who's doesn't have really a parental figure. I know he has yeah, a mother, true. but she's she's not a particularly good mother. Um, and she's not a mother without problems. So he kind of has to 
make his own way in a in a way. And I think it's a beautiful relationship that Mahershala Ali, this uh, someone who's a drug dealer that comes with you know danger and you know that's and when you see it in a movie as well, that's all you see mm. usually. But now it's kind of this really tender sort of fatherly. Um, I guess life teaching is the right way to, uh, to say it. And it's such a beautiful thing to show. And that's why Mahershala Ali is so good in it as well. Mm. He's he's both, you can understand that he's a drug dealer by the way he holds himself. But the way he like sort of playfully talks with the kid and makes jokes and stuff, he's obviously a very decent guy. And I think that's why his performance is so good. And I always used to get, uh, when it first came out, I got a bit confused because I thought it was... Um, sort of based on uh, Barry Jenkins, uh, but it's not. It's based on the uh, screenwriter, I believe. I think mm. it's based on a play. Yeah. Uh, so I was a bit confused at first, but it's also a very important for very important um, sort of representation of uh, black people as well. And it, yeah, it's such an important. Like I, I know that we, you know, we'll go on to talk about La La Land and how much we love it, but I. I think it did for what it represents as well. I think it was a good win for the movie. I, I think. I think we've said this before. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm making no mistake that how much I love La La Land, but there's no doubting that Moonlight is the more important film. Like it definitely holds more importance than La La Land does. And I mean, just just to think that this is Barry Jenkins' directorial feature debut as well is just ridiculous the fact that this i just sometimes you know when you just watch a film and you just think how have you made so little but make something so good um yeah i think uh i don't know if you've seen if beale street can talk but um his second film i think that's got that similar sort of tenderness to it um i wouldn't say it's it's not as good as moonlight otherwise it'd be on this list but um (laughs) No, Moonlight is just such a, I don't know, it feels like a tender dissection of a lot of different kinds of people. Uh, and they sort of managed to put it all into one beautiful character that's represents, that represents a lot. Um, but they also make it very personal. And I, I just think it's balanced beautifully. The three the three different uh, parts of parts in time, just, they don't, it doesn't feel jolting. Ever, it's no, such. No. It's just so smooth all the way through. It's such a beautiful movie. I love Absolutely. it. So we might as well use this sort of next time to then talk about La La Land, um, which it's a film that just hits me in such a, a such a way that is almost indescribable. Like the way it resonates with me is, um, we've used the term before of movie magic about like how sometimes a film just does a thing that is uh, almost indescribable. Um, and for me, La La Land is uh, two hours and eight minutes of pure movie magic. It just, I mean, I mean we're both huge fans of Golden Age Hollywood um, and old Hollywood musicals, but it just resonates in a way that just, like, it brings musical back in the best way possible. I think I think one reason why I came out um, the first time watching it in the theatre and I came out and just thought, you know, this is, like, just so gobsmacked is that i knew it was a musical but i've been so used to seeing just shit musicals basically you know high school musical and uh, mamma mia and stuff like that i've been so used to seeing those coming out in recent years that seeing one that is genuinely very very good was pretty shocking and pretty but you know i don't i don't 
Emma Stone won the uh, Best Actress for her role, Ryan Gosling. I don't even think he got nominated for his performance. He's not. He was good. nominated. Was he nominated? Yeah, I don't. He's not yeah. as good as Emma Stone, but together they have some of the best on screen on screen chemistry. Um, as I say, this is absolutely Gosling's decade. You know, he's been just outstanding in this. It just um, it's one of the most romantic films as well which is funny to say because you've got blue's warmest color in the same decade but it's one of the most romantic it's one of the most um uh affecting endings as well you know chazelle has this way of making such a deeply impactful and emotional ending to his films you know so whiplash has the incredible um on stage sequence this has the sequence where you see what could have happened between um, you know Gosling and Stone and then um, First Man has the just astounding moon landing sequence he has such a way to end his films you know, he's got an incredible way of creating a third act um, yeah and I just I'm deeply fully in love it's beautifully choreographed it's beautifully shot um, yeah I could gush about this film for a very long time <laughs> I think, surprisingly, though, this is the movie that I've had to stand and defend the most. Um, like, especially when, you know, talk to other people about people who like movies, um, they, they're they obviously not as on board with it as... Uh, but the, the whole world seemed to be against this movie by the time it got to the Oscars. But the way I describe to people, to go back to what you said about bringing that sort of golden age musical back, is the way I say it is it gives it has the magic of that but it kind of matures it and is just even more technically gifted than they are. Mm. So I think that's really important. And uh, I know it takes it, it takes a lot of influence from Umbrellas of Cherbourg, but you watch both of them and they're two completely different films. Um, both beautiful in their own ways. And um, Chazelle has just emerged as this just uber original director. And um, I know that obviously you like First Man as well. Yeah. And it is a fantastic film, but yeah, I, I agree with you. There was something about La La Land. I think me, you, uh, sorry, me and you were affected quite heavily by this movie when we first mm. watched it. I think Chazelle has such a great way of, um, he just has such control of what you're seeing and hearing. You know, he has, he knows exactly what he wants to make. He's probably the perfect example of how an auteur can actually be. So there's like no trepidation in his work. You know, there's no times where you ever think he's doubting himself. Um, yeah. And I just think, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's probably my favorite film of the decade. Not necessarily saying it's the best. There's too many great films in this decade, I think to pick one, but it's my favorite. And it's the one I saw it uh, five times in cinema, I think. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's an incredible thing to see on the big screen as well. Yeah, it's a very cinematic sort of experience. And uh, I agree with you about Chazelle. I think he just... it It's just so incredible to see a director that's just so in charge of his vision and can visualise his movie that includes everything, you know, like, you know, story and sound and the camera. I think it's just... It's just... It, it feels like it takes that extra step to be mm. great. I think and so not many movies do that anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, I think saying like what you're saying about how he's sort of he's in control of his craft so much is that it, the the way he uses music is really great too. Because something that musicals like subpar musicals will do is they'll use music for the sake of making a catchy song, whereas the songs in La La Land are great, but they narratively make sense as well. You know, do you feel like 
there's a reason why that song is being used there like you feel like the point is being emphasized better by a song than it would by talking um yeah which i, th- I think is really important it's, it's so brilliantly done you know especially the end as well of that uh sort of what could have been sort of thing i think that's just the perfect example of if they just you can't have them say that you need to see that through this really extravagant and beautiful uh musical number and one thing i just want to give a shout out to emma stone for the audition song yes because that won her the oscar (laughs) let's be honest yeah (laughs) she is she absolutely nails that not just in singing but she's just so vulnerable during that scene as well so she's almost you know, starts light-hearted and then she just turns into this vulnerable, uh, beautiful, almost, it has the beauty of a monologue, essentially, but she is singing. <laughs> and I, that's why I love it so much. She's so good in that. And I think that scene alone, she deserved an Oscar to me. Absolutely. absolutely. She, she tells so much emotion on her face. Um, you know, it's like being able to sing and then also tell the story in your face, because a lot of the opening of that sequence is a really big close up on her face as she's singing at the, uh, you know, at the people sort of taking this audition. Um, so but you, you, it's not just the story that you're listening to, but it's the story you're seeing her perform as well, but she's only performing with her face while singing. Just, it, there's a lot going on. It's very complex and she just does it perfectly. All right, well, that concludes the first 10 of our best of the 2010s. Uh, we're going to go into the next 10, which is more of 2016 because it's just the best year of the 2010s. Um, I hope you enjoyed. You have to let us know whether or not you think you know you agree with our list so far, uh, whether you think we've made any glaring omissions up until this point. Um, make sure you check us out on um, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter we're all at Real Reviewing uh, realreviewing.com we're on Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts if you go to anchor.fm slash realreviewing you can find everything we're on uh, YouTube and everything like that you can find me on Twitter at Philson Wilson and you can find me at Cospjord I hope you enjoyed this and I hope to catch you in the next one thanks very much Bye.